That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of the warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. When you hear that sound, it means you are in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, and I do this podcast because I was one mile from the nuclear reactor at Three Mile Island when the accident happened there in 1979. And I don't want any of you going through what I went through, let alone anything worse. Later in the podcast, you'll hear exciting news on an upcoming national rally protest demonstration in Washington, D.C. from two of the coordinators. Today is Tuesday, July 3rd, 2012, one year and 114 days since the Fukushima tragedy began on March 11th of 2011. And here is the week's nuclear news. In Japan, the OE nuclear reactors were restarted despite protests from around the country. Now the scientists are weighing in very publicly in Japan about their opinions and the information that seems to have been overlooked. The restart of the two reactors at the Kansai Electric Power Plant in OE, northwest of Tokyo, has led to seismologists warning Japan against the nuclear restart. According to Katsuhito Ishibashi, a seismologist at Kobe University, seismic modeling by Japan's nuclear regulator did not properly take into account active fault lines near the Ui plant. The stress tests and new safety guidelines for restarting nuclear power plants both allow for accidents at plants to occur, Ishibashi told reporters. Instead of making standards more strict, they both represent a severe setback in safety standards. While it is impossible to predict when earthquakes will happen, the magnitude 9 quake last year made it more likely that devastating earthquakes would follow. Seismic modeling by Japan's nuclear regulator did not properly take into account active fault lines near the Ui plant, according to Mitsuishi Watanabe, a tectonic geomorphology professor from Tokyo University. He offered new findings at a press conference on June 28th, where he shared concerns about the presence of a shattered zone called F6, which runs underground between Units 2 and 3 of the OE nuclear power plant. The expertise and neutrality of experts advising Japan's Nuclear Industrial Safety Agency are highly questionable, Watanabe said. He has asked that the government undertake an on-site examination of the geology, and he states that this examination can be undertaken thoroughly in a few days. doesn't have to take long. They just need to delay a little, and they haven't yet. Meanwhile, Kiyu Mogi, a professor emeritus of Tokyo University and the former head of the government's Earthquake Prediction Committee, said that the Bay of Wakasa on the coast of the central Japanese prefecture of Fukui has 13 commercial reactors in a 37-mile stretch known as the Nuclear Corridor, including the two at Ui. The area sits next to what some seismologists call the Devil's Triangle, where the northern and southern halves of the Japanese archipelago meet, creating a concentrated set of active fault lines. How could we have built so many nuclear plants in such a place? Mogi asked, rhetorically, of course. Meanwhile, the start of power generation at TEPCO's Ui nuclear power plant will be postponed for at least 24 hours. This, according to TEPCO, which said that the vibration of the turbine is exceeding the value recommended by the manufacturer. This problem will sound familiar, that of vibration within a nuclear power plant will sound familiar to those in Southern California who have been battling for the continued closure of the San Onofre plant. 
And finally, Japan's nine nuclear power utilities have rejected calls from shareholders to reduce or even eliminate the use of nuclear energy in their country. Moving on to Fukushima, on the 28th of June, there was an intense 5.2 earthquake centered just miles from the plant. Within three hours, radiation spikes began with the three other devastated nuclear reactors at Fukushima. Record amounts of radiation have been detected at Fukushima Unit Number 1. TEPCO, the operator of that unit, took samples from the basement of Reactor Number 1. After lowering a camera and surveying instruments through a drain hole in the basement ceiling, radiation levels above radioactive water in the basement reached up to 10,300 millisieverts an hour, a dose that would kill humans within a short time after making them sick within minutes. The annual allowed dose for workers at the stricken site would be reached in only 20 seconds. TEPCO said workers cannot enter the site and we must use robots for the demolition. Demolition of the three reactors, as well as the plant's number four unit with its precarious spent fuel pool, is expected to take 40 years and will need the use of new technologies which have not yet been invented. And this from an interview that uh, is sourced from Informable. It was an interview with nuclear engineer Chris Harris that was hosted by Tim Alexander on the Nutramedical Report. Chris Harris said, The entire spent fuel inventory is basically hanging its hat on the refueling cavity seal basically a thin piece of stainless steel with rubber on both sides. If the gasket tears or rips, you won't even need to puncture or collapse the fuel pool itself. You can get a seal failure on a good day. So now we are talking about a really bad day. You've got salt water, earthquakes, and a building falling down around it, transferring all kinds of stress. If you lose the seal, that gasket, you've got a direct shot to the containment vessel. So all the inventory of cooling water will go right down to the containment vessel. You can never pump enough water in to establish a level again that the spent fuel pool. In other words, you're done. That's it. And the last piece of news from that part of the world, South Korea has placed a temporary import ban on an additional 35 Japanese seafood products because of fears of lingering radiation contamination from products originating from the waters near the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The items banned as of Wednesday, June 27th by South Korea include several types of flatfish, clams, and sea urchins, bringing their total of Japanese seafood items prohibited in the country to 64. In Vermont, a federal appellate court finds against the state of Vermont and for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and Energy in the Vermont Yankee licensing case. Vermont's Department of Public Service, backed by anti-nuclear group the New England Coalition, had petitioned the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit to review the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's final decision to issue Vermont Yankee a license renewal, contending that it was unlawful because Energy failed to furnish a state water quality certification, which was required under the Clean Water Act. But, ah, the court decided that it was too late. Because the state of Vermont did not voice this complaint in 2006 or 2008 when other cases were before the court, the meter has run out on the viability of this information, and the facts are no longer important to the judicial bureaucracy. In March of 2011, the NRC renewed the plant's operating license for 20 more years. That case is now on appeal in the second U.S. Court of Appeals in New York. Hopefully New York will show better sense than Washington did. In Colorado... Property owners seeking damages for radioactive contamination from Colorado's Rocky Flats nuclear weapons plant have to start all over again 
after the U.S. Supreme Court refused to consider reinstating the $926 million judgment in their 22-year-old lawsuit. The Denver-based 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals said the trial judge mistakenly ruled that owners of more than 15,000 nearby parcels only had to show that plutonium from the plant was found on their land and hurt property values. A federal law governing liability from nuclear incidents, however, requires additional proof that leaks of radioactive material actually damaged property, hindered its use, or caused bodily injuries, the appellate's court ruled. Well, that's a lot of not good news in the nuclear world, so I'm very happy to move on to our guests today. You know, in a democracy, at least in theory, change is created through the expressed will of the people. When it comes to we the people's will on nuclear issues, the challenge is to make our wishes known to politicians in such a way that it moves them into action. That's why I'm excited to speak with my guests today, who are members of the Coalition Against Nukes, otherwise known as CAN, as well as coordinators of an upcoming national event. Michael Leonardi is a longtime activist, writer, and educator. He has worked on a broad range of issues, from fighting nuclear power to the abolition of the death penalty. His articles have been published extensively both in the United States and Europe and can be found primarily on Counterpunch. In the spring of 2011, he was involved at an international level on Italy's successful and dynamic referendum campaign to ban nuclear power from the peninsula. My other guest, Dr. Heidi Huttner, is Associate Professor of Sustainability, English, and Women's and Gender Studies at Stony Brook University. She teaches, writes, and speaks about ecofeminism, environmental justice, and environmental literature, film, and media. She's an anti-nuclear activist and has been working with Japanese mother anti-nuclear activists since the Fukushima disaster. Her forthcoming book, Polluting Mama, an Ecofeminist Cultural Memoir, tells her own story as a cancer survivor and mother, while exploring her mother's story as an anti-nuclear activist in the 1950s through the 80s. Heidi also keeps the blog, Ecofeminist and Mothering Ruminations. Heidi, Michael, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Hi, Heidi. You're both working as coordinators to create and promote the Coalition Against Nukes Rally for a Nuclear-Free Future to be held in Washington, D.C. this September 20th through 22nd. Why now? Why have you picked this as the time to step forward with a national event? Michael, could you get us started? With your news report there, you can see that when in regards to nuclear power issues, our backs are up against the wall. And those of us that are involved with the Coalition Against Nukes have been organizing together since the Fukushima meltdowns inspired Priscilla Starr to start the Coalition Against Nukes and bring together a network of people across the country at a grassroots level to uh, bring attention to nuclear power issues. Oftentimes, people are isolated at the local level, and this was an opportunity for us to come together nationally. And we had our first big days of events last October 1st, where we had a synchronized day of action across the country. We feel now that the issues are so pressing and urgent that it's time to try to push nuclear power onto the national agenda. And there's no better time than during the presidential election. We have two major party candidates that are both pro-nuclear. Both have been in the pockets of the nuclear industry for their entire political careers. And, And so we feel like it's very urgent now to push this issue onto the presidential agenda during the campaign season as well as to uh, push it out there into the public view. And the best way to do that, we thought, we came about this decision kind of through a group think process that we have 
was to bring uh, the issue to Washington, D.C. this September, uh, September uh, 20th, 21st, and 22nd. These will be three days of actions and strategy meetings on all the nuclear issues that we face, both domestically with international solidarity with the people in Japan, Europe, India, and other places around the world that are challenging the nuclear industry. That's it in a nutshell, I think, yeah. That's a pretty good nutshell. Heidi, what are some of the specific actions or activities that are planned thus far, or at least are, are on the table for us to think about, so we have a bigger picture as to what this event is going to be like? Okay, we're, we're beginning on Thursday, September 20th, and I think it's really important that we're starting, actually, before our congressional briefing, which is at two, between 2 and 4, uh, in room 121 in the Cannon Building. If anyone's interested in participating, we welcome everyone. Uh, we're beginning with a Mothers Against Nukes rally on the Capitol steps, and that's a really historical moment for us because from my own history and the history of nuclear, anti-nuclear activism, it really began with Women's Strike for Peace. And they made a significant move in 1961 at the Capitol, um, and they they really made a, their mark as as mothers speaking against nuclear power, nuclear weapons, um, particularly with weapons at that time, and 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 ending above ground nuclear bomb testing. And they were successful in doing that in the U.S. And it was an incredible moment. So we're hoping again that we'll see many mothers, and we know we will see many, but we're encouraging many more to come. Um, and it's also that's also tied to what's going on in Japan right now because the the incredible wave of anti-nuclear activism in Japan is led by mothers, and we have a history of this, and so we're hoping that um, this moment will really mark that again, and that will be right before the congressional briefing. Uh, we're follow following the congressional briefing, which will be uh, quite a big moment, and NEARS will be there, which is a very important anti-nuclear organization. Um, Dr. Andy Cantor from Physicians for Social Responsibility will be speaking, Alice Slater from Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. Beyond Nuclear's Paul Gunter will be speaking. Um, many other important uh, and very knowledgeable folks, also Dennis Kukinich, uh, will be there. And then um, we'll have an event, uh, nuclear-free film screening at Bus Boys and Poets from 7 p.m. We'll have live music and talks and activists, uh, lots of action there. And on Friday, September 21st, we'll have the International Nuke-Free Solidarity occupy the Japanese and Indian embassies between 9.30 and 11.30 a.m. And also we'll have the No Nukes Rally, a war rally at the NRC at Rockville Pike Place in Rockville. Let's roll this back a little bit because you were talking about Dennis Kucinich being there. I'm wondering what is the degree of, of buy-in on this event from uh, any politicians with whom you've, you or the organization have had contact? Who's coming in on this with you so far? I'm from Ohio, so Dennis Kucinich has been very proactive in Ohio on the nuclear front. He's been a, a big advocate of ours regarding the safety issues surrounding the Davis-Bessey nuclear power plant and the Perry nuclear power plant, both of which sit on the shores of Lake Erie and are in a terrible state. And he's been at the forefront of pushing the NRC, holding them to the fire to require safety standards be addressed. And he's not happy at all with the NRC. In fact, recently he stated that he thinks there should be a independent congressional investigation into the NRC's oversight regarding these two nuclear plants, especially Davis-Bessey, where they discovered cracks throughout the entire containment structure of the building that houses the reactor. It's a cement building, concrete building, and it's filled with cracks. 
and and uh, so Kucinich has been at the forefront of that. He's been our main ally in helping us to confirm a room on Capitol Hill to hold a congressional briefing. Other than that, we have people that are doing outreach right now with Sanders, Markey, and others that are our potential allies, Barbara Boxer, uh, Senator Wyden, also in Oregon. But this is a congressional briefing, so it's geared towards the House of Representatives, geared towards Congress. And so what we're doing is encouraging people at a grassroots level from now until September to contact their elected representatives at the, the grassroots level on a weekly basis, as often as they can, and tell them that they want them to attend this congressional briefing that we're going to be holding on the Capitol Hill. People can go to our website at coalitionagainstnukes.org, and they can see um, all the details of exactly where the briefing is going to be held. We're asking folks to call their congressional members and really to implore them that this is an important issue that we want our Congress to pay forthright attention to. So we don't want to see aides attending to this, this meeting. We want to see the congressional rep in person. We have a Congress that's been pretty much, except for a handful of people, out to lunch on the nuclear issue. I would say unconscious. It, it's not something that they even think about. So we really need to push it at the local level to get folks, get their congressional representatives to pay attention to such an important issue. What I really appreciate about the work that's going to pull this event together and the work, the enormous work that has been done already, is how you're giving us a lightning rod for local anti-nuclear activists to have specific actions to give to their people, their constituents, and people who might be drawn into the movement, and also given us hope in the ability to come together and experience with each other the power of our movement from a position of solidarity. Now, Heidi, uh, just briefly, can you tell us a few of the other um, uh, activities that are going to take place? Well, I think actually I covered it. There's quite a bit. I mean, I think that there's there's the congressional event, and uh, we hope people will, again, I, I agree with Michael, it's really time for people to, to push to push their local senators and push push their at the grassroots level push their politicians to attend and to listen. I think the more that our, our politicians know we care, the more they're going to respond. That's the way it works. So we, we if we want them to care, we have to call them and write to them and pressure them to be present. And the other part of it is that people want to be involved with things like we'll have a flash mob at the at the mother's event beforehand. Uh, we want women with strollers. We encourage people to come with children if they if they're comfortable. Um, we hope you know, we expect and, and we know it will be very peaceful. And then there will be sort of a more artistic event at the at the Bus Boys and Poets, and that's a chance for people to come here, artists and musicians speak and read from their work and hear the music that is being made that that really speaks to the issue. I mean, one of the things that's come out of Japan uh, for those of us who are following it is just beautiful artwork and films and paintings and poetry that really shows that the tremendous pain and, and tragedy and suffering that's happening there. While there's politics, there's also great passion and tragedy, and that, that experience will, will be felt particularly at the, at the Poets and Busboys event. On Friday evening, there will be another uh, event that brings people together. After the protests at the NRC headquarters, we're still nailing down a location for that. We haven't uh, picked a Final, finalize the location for the Friday evening event, 
And then on Saturday, we will have a retreat strategy session, and we have two very dynamic facilitators. One that's um, uh, taking the lead on that is named Kathleen Sullivan, who's really focusing on strong strategy meeting on that Saturday, where that we can bring what we've done in solidarity in Washington, D.C., back to the local and regional level one more time before the election at the end of October um, to do uh, regional and local actions in synchronicity throughout the country uh, at the end of October before the election. I know that there are going to be people who want to participate in this but may not be able to get to Washington, D.C. for this event. How might they take action in their own communities, in their own states, in order to coordinate and create a truly national presence for the movement, for the issues that we're talking about? I totally support that. I think it's really important, but I also think people need to come. I think this needs to be an event like the Tar Sands protests we've seen, like the, the huge bodies that turn out for fracking. This is a really important issue. That isn't to say if people can't make it, they shouldn't act locally. Right. I also have on the call today Gene Stone of Residents Organized for a Safe Environment here in Southern California. He's been one of those people fighting vigilantly for years against the nuclear reactors at San Onofre. Now, Gene, it's always good to have you on Nuclear Hot Seat, and please fill us in. What are the plans for Californians who can't get to D.C. in September? Well, actually, we're working with uh, Coalition Against Nukes and uh, other groups to have an action directly after the September 22nd event in D.C. We encourage everyone to go to D.C. to the event and then to go home and bring the information that they've gained to their communities. And one of the plans that we have working is a no-nukes bus ride from every state in the Union that has a nuclear power plant. We'll be going uh, organizing a ride all on the same day from different environmental groups throughout each state to the state capitol to deliver a letter to the governor and to the legislators and also to have a press conference on the steps of each state capitol about the no nukes movement and the things that are pertinent to each state will be sent to the legislators through this uh, letter and the news conference. So that would be after the major event in uh, Washington, D.C., not something that would take place at the same time in solidarity. The goal here is to galvanize all the states with nuclear power plants and to have an action together after we come together in D.C. We'll go home with all of our information and after that strategy meeting, and then we will all merge into an action sometime in late October before the election to reinforce everything that we've done thus far. That's terrific. And, of course, I will be making that information available through Nuclear Hot Seat. Heidi, Michael, if our listeners want to find out more, want to get involved, where do they go? How can they learn the information they need to not only participate, but perhaps be part of the organizing for what looks like it's going to be an historic event in Washington, D.C. this fall? We have a website, coalitionagainstnukes.org, all one word. That would be the first thing to do, and really all of the information is there. And through that website, they can contact us. We'll also see what, what's happening, what time, location, travel, places to stay, and they can get involved with helping helping to organize. We, we, we definitely welcome that. We have a Facebook group called Coalition Against Nukes. So if people do a search for that on Facebook, you can find the group usually. Coalition Against Nukes on Facebook, and there's also 
an event page now on Facebook for the rallies against rally against nukes in Washington D.C. this September. So you should be able to find those on Facebook, and I believe also on our website you can find the links to Facebook. And we're also we also have a a bunch of tweeters out there that are tweeting for us. The best way to get a hold of us is through the website at coalitionagainstnukes.org. And if you were to leave the listeners with a thought, with a piece of motivation, with a vision of what this is and what it can be, what would you like to say to them now? Recently, I I saw the film and I I was really captivated by it and inspired by it, Um, the film Into Eternity. Uh, And I, I was on a panel with Paul Gunter from Beyond Nuclear in Detroit, Michigan, just up the road from the Fermi 1 nuclear power plant that had a partial meltdown in the 1960s. There was a book written about that called We Almost Lost Detroit. It also inspired a song called uh, called We Almost Lost Detroit by the legendary Gil Scott Heron, who's uh, no longer with us. These issues are pertinent to our times. Uh, To me, the fact that we are still producing nuclear waste there's no solution for it. It's the biggest threat to humanity out there. Coupled with fracking and all these other despicable practices, that fracking that has been proven to lead to intensification of seismic activity near nuclear power plants. To me, it's just almost, I would call it psychotic behavior on the part of human beings to continue forward with this peaceful atom that has proven not to be peaceful in any way, shape, or form. So I think it's imperative for people now to act, to stand up, to do something for future generations. I have a three-year-old daughter who's about to turn four, and I'm going to do everything I can to stop nuclear energy from being produced and nuclear waste from being produced to leave her some semblance of a future on this planet. Heidi, do you have something you'd like to add to that? I, I feel similarly. You know, it comes back to being a parent, being a cancer survivor, watching too many people I know with cancer, wondering why the cancer rates are going up and not down. Uh, and and you know, it's clear if you do if you if you open if you open the box and you do any research, it is so clear that we're dealing with such a dangerous, dangerous form of energy, and and it's such a threat to us. And to be looking away from what's happening in Japan right now is is insane. And and if you know if anyone's interested, I've written a very short and easy piece in Yes Magazine uh, called "In Japan: A Mother's Movement Against Nuclear Power." And it's it's not you know filled with facts about nuclear radiation and 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 physics and all that. But if, if those of you are not familiar with it, but you will get a sense from the women on the ground. These are ordinary mothers, housewives, people who are not you know highly educated necessarily. Some are, who have are hitting the streets in record numbers. Hundreds of thousands of people were protesting on Thursday against the restart. Japan is really in a a tragic situation, and it can be us. And it's just, it's insane to look the other way. And this is the time to really pay attention. Our reactors are old, they're aging, they're all up for relicensing, and the NRC is going to keep them open if we don't do something about it. And we're dealing with just tremendous amounts of waste. We have no place to put, to, to, to put, it, put it in at the moment. We have no, no way to dispose of it safely. And what are we leaving our children? What are we leaving our children? Exactly. Michael, Leonardi, and Heidi Hutner, thank you so much for being on the podcast. 
You are doing wonderful work as coordinators for the September's Coalition Against Nukes three-day rally on September 20th, 21st, and 22nd. I look forward to you being there. Uh, I look forward to seeing you there. And I thank you and Gene Stone from Rose for being on today's Nuclear Hot Seat. Now I'm going to move into the holistic healing radiation protection section of the podcast. And this is coming uh, as part of an advisory from a resident, not an official, just a resident, from Minami Soma City in Fukushima. Uh, this was sent out to residents near the Ui nuclear reactors, but if you live within 50 miles of a nuclear reactor here in the United States, which one-third of all Americans do, it's good advice to follow as well. I'm not going to do the whole advisory, but just share with you a few of the more pertinent pieces. One is to get your own radiation monitoring equipment. You need to know the change in measurement day by day, so you don't have to get the best one. You just need to get one that will show you the relative changes between the days. Never trust the government's or the power plant's monitoring reports because they will be a lie. Make friends in areas at least 100 miles away from you. Make sure you have more than one place where you can evacuate and make certain they are in different directions so you can gauge where you go depending on how the wind is blowing. Once you have a place that you have identified that you can evacuate to, test drive your evacuation routes. If you have to evacuate, you're going to be distracted and terribly stressed out, so you need to be able to do the drive on automatic pilot. You're also going to need, I'm adding this right now, but you're also going to need something to deal with the stress, a homeopathic rescue remedy, Bach flower remedies in the car with you so that you can deal with what's probably going to be the traffic jam of the century. Know what you really need to bring with you because you need to make up your mind that you're going to be away from home for at least a year and maybe forever. Assume that whatever you leave behind will be stolen or contaminated. And one last piece that they offered that I thought was really very savvy, and that is it's always a good idea to make friends who are nuclear plant workers and network with them so you will have a reliable source of information should anything happen. A good thing to do is find out what bars nuclear power plant workers frequent after their shift and hang out there. Have a beer, have a soda, fall into conversation. You never know what you're going to have the chance to learn. So we've heard a lot about the opportunity to join with other activists, but here's another activist opportunity which makes good on an offer that was made on last week's Nuclear Hot Seat. I interviewed a, a marvelous guest, environmental attorney Susan Hito Shapiro, who's been working against Indian Point in New York City. And she offered to put out a call to network with other lawyers so that they can share strategies, observations, and provide support from their very unique and evolved legal position. If you know any attorney who is involved in the issue or interested in becoming involved, have them contact Phase Attorney, and that's spelled P-H-A-S-E attorney at gmail.com. And if you want to get an idea of exactly how sharp Susan Shapiro is, you can listen to her interview. It's Nuclear Hot Seat number 54 from June 26th of 2012. And you can find that at nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. Here's a final thought for today. Tomorrow is the 4th of July when we in the United States celebrate the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, as proof that our flag is still there. What a horrible bit of programming to put into our national anthem, that we only exist as a nation if we're waging war. 
think about this if you're watching fireworks tomorrow night. And let's all hope and work together so that in real life, neither we nor any other country ever again see nuclear explosions from bombs or malfunctioning reactors or improperly stored nuclear waste. Because that won't be proof of our nation's existence. It will be a sign that we're all about to not exist at all and never will again. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, July 3rd, 2012. You can find us posted on NuclearHotSeat.com forward slash blog, on the Facebook pages, which are Nuclear Hot Seat and Nuclear Hot Seat Group, and also on iTunes Podcast, where you can subscribe to us. Feel free to share our links and forward the download. And if you have thoughts on how to improve Nuclear Hot Seat, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, do not go back to sleep. Be safe, be well, and I will speak with you again next week. <laughs>